2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. During the dreadful years of persecution in Scotland, between 1633 and 1688, young clergymen who championed a biblical ecclesiology and a biblical soteriology, in other words, church polity as well as the doctrine of salvation, were driven from their charges by an ungodly king, King Charles I, who at that time was king of England, Scotland, and Ireland. And under the threat of fine and imprisonment, and of torture and of death, they were restricted from preaching the only gospel that can save. With no way of earning a living, and with orders from the king to inflict heavy fines and imprisonment and even torture leading to death upon anyone that would help these pastors, according to William Blakey, a 19th century theologian and historian, He says this, the preacher with a great price on his head had no certain dwelling place and where there was no friendly cottage to shelter him had to wander about in wild, lonely places, sleeping in woods and caves, often cold and wet and hungry, racked by rheumatism or prostrated by dysentery, glad if he could succeed in keeping his pocket Bible dry. Well, despite the satanic onslaught of persecution designed to terrorize both the field preachers, as they were called, as well as those who would hear them, despite all of that, knowing that they could be subject to a slow and hideous death, nevertheless, these men proclaimed the unsearchable riches of Christ with fervent boldness. Their sermons thundered across the moors and the mountain recesses of the northern third of the island of Great Britain, often to massive crowds of hungry people that were starving for the glory and the greatness of God, for the transforming and liberating truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ. One such field preacher was a young man by the name of Richard Cameron, They believe he was born in 1648. He died in 1680. 
But this young man, like many of the others, refused to submit to the crown's high church Anglican form of church governance called the Episcopacy that sought to control the Church of Scotland by placing within the church their own bishops, appointed bishops, and they demanded that the king be considered the head of the church rather than Christ. Refusing to submit to such unbiblical understandings of these things and all of the concomitant heresies that go with that kind of thinking, Cameron became a leader in the militant Presbyterians among the militant Presbyterians known as the Covenanters. He was a born preacher, they say, with virtually no theological training except that which he received from other field preachers. But he was a mighty and a fearless preacher in the spirit of the Apostle Paul. In his book, The Scottish Covenanters, 1638 to 1688, a man by the name of James Dodds, who lived from 1813 to 1874, paints a beautiful picture of the spirit-empowered revivals that took place during that time when thousands of saints as well as sinners met in the wilderness to worship God by hearing Cameron preach the gospel while many men stood guard. Here's what he had to say. Picture to yourselves this noble and majestic youth with blooming countenance and eagle eye standing on some huge rock uplifted in the wilderness. 10,000 people are grouped around him. The aged with the women and children seated near this pulpit of nature's handiwork. The men of middle age and the stalwart youths of the surrounding hamlets composing the outer circle. Many with their hands on their swords and their trusty guns slung by their side and On each neighboring height, there may be seen the solitary figure of the watchman intently gazing in all directions for the approach of the troopers who were now kept garrison in every district and who night and day are on the prowl to catch some poor outlawed covenanter or surprise some conventicle in the depths of the hills. It is a Sabbath in May. The great wild moor stretches out to a kind of infinity blending at last with the serene blue sky. How sublime and peaceful the moment, even in this age of violence and oppression, of the dungeon, the rack, and the scaffold, and murder and cold blood in the fields. Heaven smiles on the remnant. All is hushed and reverent in attention. The word is precious. The psalm has been sung and the echoes of the myriad voices have died on the moorland breeze. The prayer has been offered, the earnest wrestlings with heaven of men who before sunset may themselves be an offering for their religion. Then the preacher rises, his eyes for a moment in silence, that vast, looking over that vast multitude gathered from all parts of the West always serious, always inspired with elevated feeling, there is in his manner more than the usual usual solemnity. Yes, he knows that his days are numbered, and but a few more sons, the heather sod shall be his bed of death. 
A strange, almost unearthly sympathy is visible, stirring those assembled thousands to the very depths of their being, rousing himself from the reverie which had passed over him. The preacher announces his text. Ye will not come to me that ye might have life. End quote. Now, my purpose here is simple. I wish to give you a flavor of a man and of men like many others who knew what it was to find strength and weakness. Young Cameron knew how to tap in to the same resources that you and I have because we are united to Christ. He understood and he applied Paul's admonition to Timothy when he said in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 1, You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And in verse 3, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. On July 22nd, the government dragoons killed young Cameron at Erd's Moss near Cumnock. And there they mutilated his body by severing his hands and his head And then, in perhaps a more heinous act of barbaric cruelty, they took his hands and his head to Edinburgh to show to his father, who was also incarcerated for the same crimes. It's hard to imagine a more macabre scene. It's hard to imagine a more satanic hatred that can influence men to act so wickedly. When the father was asked if he recognized the hands and the head, he responded, and I quote, I know them. I know them. They are my sons, my own dear sons. It is the Lord. Good is the will of the Lord who cannot wrong me or mine, but has made goodness and mercy to follow us all our days. And then history records that they took the young man's head and they placed it upon a pole and they paraded it around the streets of Edinburgh. And finally, his head and his hands were affixed to the Netherbow gate for public display. Beloved, I could give you hundreds of similar stories that have occurred down through redemptive history. This is but one, but when considering this kind of violent opposition to the truth that not only marked the early days of Scotland, but countless other countries over the years, we all must admit that there's something supernatural at work here. This is beyond just the normal pale of how humans would treat each other. Truly, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And this requires every Christian, therefore, as Paul says, to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, like Richard Cameron and thousands of others like him down through redemptive history. But this kind of evil had been at work long before 17th century Scotland. As we examined last week in part one of our study here in 2 Timothy, 
This type of persecution was gaining momentum in the final days of Paul's life and ministry. And the mounting persecution along with the heretics that had infiltrated the church at Ephesus were gaining power. And young Timothy, the pastor, Paul's son in the faith, was growing fearful and weak. So, writing from a Roman dungeon, cold and shackled in chains, Paul writes to his son in the faith and exhorts him, saying things like, Kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Second Timothy 1, verses 6 and 7. And in verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Verse 12, for this reason I also suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And in verse 13, he says, retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me. And in verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. So when we come to 2 Timothy 2 in verse 1, we better understand his loving exhortation to Timothy when he says to him, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. To be sure, we all struggle with spiritual weakness, don't we? Life can be very hard. Persecution is on the rise. And many times we feel a lot more like Timothy than Richard Cameron, right? I know what that's like. We all do. In fact, the Apostle Paul even asked the saints at Ephesus in Ephesians six nineteen to, quote, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Now, many will ask, how are we to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus? That sounds good. It sounds noble. I want to do that. How do I do that? Well, as we began to examine last week, The Spirit of God reveals the answer to us, actually in many passages of Scripture, but especially here, where, through the inspired words of the Apostle Paul, he describes four kinds of people whose characteristics we should emulate. That of the teacher, the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And in verses... Two and following, he goes on to give practical specifics of how to tap into that enabling power of God's all-sufficient grace. By way of review, the first thing we have to do is we have to get serious about being a teacher. Verse 2, he says, the things which you have heard from me, in other words, the revelation that you received from Christ himself, you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So, folks, you need to know the truth of divine revelation. You need to guard this great treasure because heretics are constantly seeking to destroy it. And because fearful saints are defecting. That's what was going on then. The same thing goes on now. 
Again, in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Young people, if I can speak to you just for a moment, you are surrounded by ungodly people. You know that. I was talking with one of my grandsons the other day, and we were, we were just lamenting over this. You're surrounded by people that are spiritually dead. They are alienated from God. They serve their father, the devil, the devil, and they will tempt you to be like them. You encounter them in your high school, not only your friends, but your teachers. You go to college and you're going to see professors that mock God's word and all who belong to him. And many of them will know error better than you know truth. But know this. You will never be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus unless you become a man and a woman of the word. You'll never grow in that strength. You'll never be able to tap into it unless you know the word, you live the word, and you teach the word. You impart the word. You become a discipler. You know, you'd really never have the word until you teach it, right? Until you give it away. The Great Commission says that we're to make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So herein is the secret, young people, and everyone, the secret to finding strength and and in weakness. A biblically and doctrinally illiterate Christian with no commitment to discipleship is a spiritual weakling, the type of person that will compromise and will cower in fear at the first sign of attack and adversity. And having them in Christian leadership is a disaster waiting to happen. And Paul knew that. You know, there's a reason why NFL football teams don't draft pusillanimous girly men to be offensive linemen, right? There's a reason why they don't do that. I mean, they... they, They'd get trampled like rats in an elephant stampede. The difference is, however, and this is where my analogy breaks down, we all have the resources to be offensive linemen spiritually. We all have that. And the, the, the first thing that we've got to keep in mind, if we're going to tap into that, is to be men and women of the word. I'm going to betray my age a little bit, but I remember watching Popeye. I won't ask for hands who can remember that. But you remember Popeye was this little weakling, and Bluto, I think, was the guy that kept beating up on him and trying to take olive oil from him. But boy, if you gave him the spinach, look out. Well, folks, we have the spinach. We have the spinach. The second kind of person whose characteristic we should emulate if we want to tap into the enabling power of God's all-sufficient grace, is that of the soldier. This is another familiar metaphor that Paul would use. Verse 3, he says, suffer hardship with me. Suffer hardship in the original language uh, grammatically carries the idea of, of to suffer together with someone. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Good is a Greek term. It could be translated a a, a commendable, uh, an an exceptional soldier. And we know that there are good soldiers and then there are soldiers. 
You might say mediocre soldiers. Good soldiers are all in serving their commanding officer, all in when it comes to accomplishing their mission, willing to sacrifice everything for a cause greater than their own self-interest. Mediocre soldiers just show up. They're just kind of there. They're self, they are self-serving and not self-sacrificing. I, I remember talking last year with a, a battle-scarred, I mean literally battle-scarred uh, soldier that just retired from the Army, highly decorated, been in, in many, many years of, of deployment, and he had been in training, training others for a period of time, and, and he was lamenting over what he called the new sissy boy snowflake recruits. That's what he called them, sissy boy snowflake recruits. And I, I'm going to leave out some of the colorful language. He's not a believer, but you can imagine. But he described them as lazy, entitled, self-absorbed, undisciplined, unsubmissive, disrespectful. And I remember I went later and I wanted to write this down. He says, we have to pamper the powder puffs and pander the LGBTQers. And he says, who, who wants to go into battle with a drag queen? And he said, I just got sick of it. Well, sadly, many professing Christians are sissy boy snowflakes when it comes to the battle for the truth. Folks, we're at war. There is a war going on. And Satan is doing everything he can to defeat you, to destroy your marriage, to destroy your family, to capture the minds and the hearts of your children to render you useless in service to Christ. The father of lies and his demonic hosts are, are using humans to try to destroy all of us. By the way, I believe cell phones are really the Trojan horse that he is using to infiltrate the minds of our children. And the question is, do you see this? I don't mean just the cell phone issue. I mean the war. Do you realize that we are at war? Are you willing to suffer hardship with others as a good soldier of Christ? Is it your ambition to please the supreme commander, the Lord Jesus? Verse 4, Paul goes on and says, No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. As a soldier, uh, the, the term entangled is uh, a passive form of a verb that means to be tangled up or uh, to, to weave, to intertwine. So it's the idea of, of, of being hindered, like intertwined or tangled up in a line. That's the idea. He's, the point is, he's saying that the good soldiers don't get themselves tangled up in civilian affairs. Well, good things, bad things, doesn't matter. They're, they're singularly focused. They separate themselves from extraneous matters and interests that, and, and trivial pursuits that might distract them. Um, there's a man, he, he just moved. He, he, he disappeared. He's a special forces guy right down the road from me. Got to know him a little bit, and I would always see him out. He was always running, always lifting weights, always at the gun range constantly dedicated, ready to serve. 
That's a good soldier. I was thinking of some of the military mottos. The Marines have a motto, Semper Fidelis, always faithful. The Army, Vigilantia Eternia, this we'll defend. The Coast Guard, Semper Paratus, always ready. The Navy, Semper Fortis, always courageous. The Air Force, I couldn't find the, the Latin, but it's aim high, fly, fight, win. That's the idea. That's the mindset. So a good soldier is prepared to risk his life for others. He wants to please the one who has enlisted him as a soldier. And dear friends, when Christ is our greatest joy and we are committed to serving him, we will have as our ambition to be pleasing to him, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 9. Spiritually speaking, a good soldier is not going to be a man pleaser. He's going to be a Christ pleaser. He really won't care what man says. You remember what Paul said in Galatians 1.10, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You see, when we try to please the world, we become like the world. And inevitably what happens is we drift into immorality and stupidity. We begin to think like the world, look like the world, act like the world, act like people who hate Christ. And even though we may hold a sound doctrine, we end up forsaking our first love. That's what happened eventually at the church of Ephesus, as we read in Revelation 2. So this is the kind of soldier Paul wanted Timothy to be. One willing to fight the good fight, as he said in 1 Timothy 1.18. In fact, Paul understood this. Remember at the end of his letter in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, he said, I have fought the good fight. Folks, are you fighting the good fight? Or are you just watching others do it? If you want to be strong in the Lord, if you want to be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus, you must have this kind of mindset You must have a soldier mentality, a warrior mentality. You must have this kind of dedication. So you want to ask yourself, do I really see myself as a soldier engaged in fierce combat? And if the answer is no, you will never be able to tap into the the strength that is yours. Many believers are like soldiers who are AWOL. I see them from time to time. It's fascinating to watch them. They'll show up at church just kind of out of duty. It's kind of out of habit. It's kind of the cultural thing to do, especially in the South. No big deal if you're faithful or not. This is kind of a social club, a place to make sure your kids can have fun and you can get to know people, maybe um, get some business contacts, and you kind of feel good about yourself. That's the soldier that's gone AWOL. But Christian soldiers that are engaged in spiritual conflict, my, and so many of you are this way. I I, I know what it's like. You come here not out of duty, but out of desperation. You, You want to worship the Lord. You want to once again see him high and lifted up and exalted. You're you're tired of, of seeing him so defamed. You've been suffering hardship as a good soldier of Christ all week long. 
You've taken unpopular stands. You've posted unpopular posts. You've stood up to ungodly people, some of them in your own family. And you're exhausted. And you can't wait to come to church. You're fatigued. You're wounded. You're lonely. And like Jesus, you're a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. You've been out there proclaiming the truth, and most people hate you for it. I say that you suffer from PTSD, physically traumatized by spiritual darkness. You're longing to bask in the light of truth. You're craving the glory and the greatness of God. You're you're, you're starving for the nourishment and the comfort and the hope that is in the word of God. As the psalmist says in Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. Now that's what a soldier does when he comes to church or she comes to church. They're at war with their own flesh as well as Satan's world system that's opposed to God's purposes and God's people. Second Timothy 10, Paul says, beginning in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, in other words, though we have human limitations, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And again, as I said earlier, the warrior's mindset is summarized in Ephesians 6, verse 12. We know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Paul commands us to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So you must ask yourself, am I willing to suffer hardship as a good soldier of Christ Jesus? Notice the third figure Paul uses to help Timothy grasp the mindset that he needs to have to tap into the power of Christ's all-sufficient grace that he already possesses. It's that of the athlete, verse 5. He says, also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The term competes in the original language carries the idea of wrestling or struggling. An athlete is committed to the struggle to win his event or her event. And to compete as an athlete in that day, as well as today, you had to be absolutely devoted to your sport. You would be characterized by persistence and self-denial and self-discipline so that you could be the very best to win the prize. Training regimens and diet restrictions are crucial for the athlete. I've counseled a number of professional athletes over the years and a couple of Olympic medalists, and I'm always fascinated to talk with them and to hear about the rigorous training programs that they have. Without fail, they will tell you that soft drinks and sugar are like poison. They just stay away from it completely. And one pro basketball player told me, quote, I can't remember the last time I ate a piece of pizza or drank a soda or ate at a fast food joint. That's why most of us don't play professional basketball, right? 
They train hard. In fact, I learned the other day about the NBA star Stephen Curry. He's just a little guy. He's a little guard that plays for the Golden State Warriors. He's only 6'3", just a little guy, right? But I read that he does running and dribbling drills anywhere from two to four hours a day, and he shoots until he makes 500 three-pointers every day. He doesn't shoot 500 times. He shoots until he makes 500. And then they say that he shoots 100 three-pointers before every game. By the way, that's why he makes over $40 million a year. The point is, if you want to want something bad enough, you'll do whatever it takes to achieve it. And that's Paul's point with Timothy. Timothy, if you want to gain the victory over your flesh, over your fears over Satan and his world system and all of these morons that he's bringing around you to terrorize you and everybody else, you need to get serious about spiritual discipline like an athlete. Quit being a wimp. Learn how to control what you allow in your mind. Start feeding upon the word. Control your emotions, starve your lusts, establish godly priorities and boundaries in your life, and stay committed to them. Get on a program, if you will. Let me give you one example from Scripture. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul warns Timothy about the importance of being committed to God's Word and, and avoiding false teachers. It's just something you just got to avoid. And boy, there's a lot of them out there today because of the Internet and television and all of these things. And he says this in 1 Timothy 4, beginning in verse 7, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. By the, by the way, that was a common uh, epithet describing ridiculous myths that are only fit for the naive and the ignorant. And we have them today, ridiculous things like the prosperity gospel, like a lot of this craziness that you see in the charismatic and Pentecostal movements, those, those superstitions that are so alluring to people. But he goes on to say, and on the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Discipline in the original language is, comes from a, a word, gymnazo. We get our word gymnasium from that. And it denotes rigorous training, self-denial, self-discipline, self-sacrifice. And that's what an athlete has to be committed to. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And he says, for bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness, that is a proper attitude and response towards God, godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so Paul is simply saying, Timothy, quit wimping out. Get serious about your training in godliness. Expect to struggle, to sweat, to work hard, to suffer. But the prize is a powerful spiritual life where you experience the soul-satisfying joy of the presence of God and His power, not to mention the promise of eternal reward. Now back to verse 5, 2 Timothy 2. He says, if anyone competes as an athlete... He does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Now, Timothy and all of the saints of that day would have understood what this was saying because the Greek games of that day that we would call the Olympics required athletes to meet three qualifications. First of all, they had to prove that they were truly 
Greek, that they were born Greek. Secondly, they had to swear before Zeus that they had trained for at least 10 months prior to the games. And then thirdly, they had to compete according to the rules of their event. John MacArthur makes an interesting observation based on this. He says, quote, comparable rules apply to spiritual Christians. We must be truly born again. We must be faithful in study and obedience of God's word in self-denial and in prayer. And we must live according to Christ's divine standards of discipleship. Now, dear Christian, I ask you, does this describe you? I, I hope it does. If not, here's the point. You will never know what it is to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Moreover, you will forfeit eternal reward. You know, none of us want to, to physically be in a, a state where we're, where we're weak and we're, we're out of shape and we're, we're sickly. We're just kind of a couch potato that can't function. So what do we do? Well, we, we try to exercise. We try to watch what we eat. And what's the reward of that? Well, you're, you have a healthy body so that you can enjoy life. But we have to do the same thing spiritually. We have to watch what goes into our mind. We have to exercise our faith. We have to be disciplined in a personal pursuit of holiness and nourish our minds with the truth. And the reward is that soul-satisfying joy, that exhilaration of experiencing a felt Christ. And therefore, having, having the power to be able to live for his glory, to be able to raise a godly family, to be able to enjoy serving Christ and to be effective in serving Christ, not to mention the hope of eternal reward. You know, I find myself constantly reflecting upon Paul's testimony to the Corinthians in this regard knowing they were fans of the Isthmian games, uh, named after the Isthmus of Corinth, where they were held, he asks them this in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Well, obviously, this is a rhetorical question. They, they would have all answered in the affirmative. So he goes on, based on this, to exhort them in verses 25 and following. He says this, run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Well, obviously, self-denial, self-discipline, self-control are essential if you want to win the prize. And there it's, it's a crown, a stephanos. It, in the original language, which which was merely a, a wreath or or a garland. Uh, at first, they were made out of plastered uh, pine leaves, and perhaps later on, they believed they were made out of celery, if you can imagine that. I mean, think about that. All that work and effort for some nasty-looking vegetable to put on your head, you know, um, something that's going to decay, uh, you know, I, I would imagine ancient trophy cases must have looked like a garbage dump behind Panera Bread. You know, I mean, 
It's not like you can display those. All that work for what? You know, something that's perishable. Aren't you thankful that the crowns that we have are imperishable? And by the way, that's figurative language. It's not like we're going to get to heaven and we're going to have a bunch of crowns, so to speak. It's not literal crowns. James described it as as the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. James 1.12. It could be translated the crown, which is life, referring to eternal life. Peter described it in 1 Peter 5.4 as the unfading crown of glory. And when will we receive it? When the chief shepherd appears. And Paul later says to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 8, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And then according to Revelation 4.10, knowing that apart from Christ we can do nothing, and therefore he alone is responsible for any reward we might receive, we read this. The 24 elders, representing the redeemed, will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of you they all exist and were created. Well, one last figure that Paul uses and that is the figure of the farmer. Notice he says the hard-working farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Now, once again, Paul is underscoring the need for self-sacrifice, for self-denial, self-determination. He's underscoring how, as believers, we're going to have to struggle. We're, We're going to have to be persistent if we want to gain the reward. And in this case, in the analogy, it's the reward of a harvest. I I remember on many occasions talking with my father. He was raised on on a little farm uh, out here in the hills of of Kentucky, not too far from here. Uh, Mom and a dad and nine kids. You had lots of kids in those days because they were farm hands, right? And I remember him saying on many occasions, we knew that if you didn't work, you didn't eat. And often there was nothing but potatoes, cornbread, and buttermilk, especially during the depressions, all they had. Now, most of us know nothing of this kind of life, but, but, but this is certainly what Paul has in mind for Timothy and each of us. And it, it's, it's fascinating when you think about the, the figure here that Paul is using, that, that of the farmer. A, a farmer is constantly fighting the weather, uh, he, the invasive weeds and insects and critters, uh, there, there's a time to cultivate, there's a time to plant, there's a time to weed, and there's a time to harvest. And none of that really depends on you. It depends upon the crop and the weather, right? And so you're, you're at the mercy of those things. And also farmers work long hours, often alone. I mean, think about this. No thankful students to stimulate you and encourage you like a teacher. No brothers in arms to embolden you in battle like the soldier. No crowd to cheer you on or or teammates to motivate you like the athlete. 
The farmer toils tirelessly in obscurity. Day in, day out, the same boring, monotonous, unrewarding routines until the harvest. Then he gets his reward. And that makes it worth it all, right? That's the point. Beloved, someday every believer will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, where Christ will evaluate his or her works, what that person did for his glory. Romans 14.10, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. By the way, judgment is translated bima. It refers to um, a raised platform or steps that they would use in the athletic games where where a judge would would give the rewards to the victors. We see some element of that in the Olympics when the when the medalists stand up on the on the raised platforms. It was also used in in uh, political and uh, judicial contexts where judges would would ascend to this raised platform to render decisions in legal cases. 1 Corinthians 3, 13, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, referring to the fire of God's discerning judgment. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on, it remains, he will receive a reward. By the way, in this judgment, the Lord's not going to just look at what we did. He's going to look at why we did it. He's going to look at our motives. First Corinthians 4, 5 says that the Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, we don't have time to get into this. I know you're asking, well, what will these rewards be? Well, Scripture really doesn't say but we get some hint of this in Luke 19, verses 11 through 27, in Jesus' kingdom parable of, of the nobleman's rewards and the ten minas and so forth. And there we learn how Jesus is going to grant greater positions and more authority to different ones during his earthly kingdom, his millennial reign, as a reward for faithful service motivated by a zeal for the glory of God, which is going to vary among believers. Well, dear CBC family, as we embark upon a new year, I want all of us to not only know how to access the all-sufficient grace, the power that we have, but to actually do it. And you'll never do this unless you apply these four figures to your own life. You've got to be a teacher. You've got to be like a soldier, an athlete, like a farmer. And notice Paul's encouraging words in verse 7 as he concludes these loving admonitions to Timothy, who desperately needed to find strength and weakness. He said, consider what I say. Folks, you need to underline that. This, in the original language, is very clear. This is an imperative. This is a command. It is not a suggestion. He's literally saying, Timothy, I want you to pensively reflect upon this. I want you to chew it over. I want you to meditate upon it. I want you to think it through. 
I want you to ponder this because you are vacillating, you are equivocating, you are beginning to wimp out, you're growing increasingly timid, you're becoming a spiritual snowflake, if you will. Come on, get serious, Timothy. Be a man. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, we read, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. By the way, in the world that I come from, there's a paraphrase of that verse. It's just two words. Cowboy up. Cowboy up. Yeah, but pastor, you know, I, I man, I, I get home late. I work hard every day. And I, I, we, I'm just too exhausted to really interact with my wife about spiritual things or leader in devotions or, or, or attend to those types of things with my kids. I, you know, I'm just not the devotional type of guy. And, and frankly, I'm not a reader. I, I, I don't like to read. Sorry. You know, I, I'm just not into all of that. And, and, and so a lot of these things are really hard for me. Come on, guys. Wake up. Cowboy up. That's all I hear. I've heard this stuff. And we all know it's silly. Get serious. We're at war. Put on your big boy pants. Isn't that what we say in our vernacular? Put on your big boy pants and be a man of God. Or as some somebody said, get your thumb out of your mouth, right? Turn off the television. Get off the couch. Pick up your sword and get back in the fight. Because we have the power. Consider what I say. And then he says, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. In other words, be a teacher, be a soldier, an athlete, and a farmer in your character and your conduct. And watch what God will do. He will unleash that power that is within you because you are in Christ. And what he's saying here, the Lord is going to give you discernment and power to face whatever comes your way, no matter how difficult. May we all be committed to these ends. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truths of your word that speak so directly to all of us. And we can all find a thousand excuses to justify our ways of functioning that are inconsistent with these four characters. And I pray that you'll bring conviction to every heart. Lord, we're all weak here. We all have areas where we can improve. And we all know this. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, you will help us to see specifically those ways where we can do better. Not because we are trying to please you. That's taken care of. We know that there's no condemnation because we're in Christ. But, Lord, we want more of your power. We want more joy. We want to be strong as you've commanded us, to be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. Help us to be that kind of church, that kind of people. And, Lord, if there's one here today that knows nothing of what it is to be in Christ, I pray that they will confess their sins before you and ask, ask you to save them by your grace. Overwhelm them with conviction. 
Help them to understand and apply the gospel that they might be saved. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.